fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. I'm saying that you cannot say that numbers collected at the employer's place of business reflect simply the employer's policies. Those, num those numbers reflect underlying conditions in the whole society, just as numbers collected at the hospital do not show you that people are sick because they're in the hospital. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're tuning in to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone, and this is episode 21, titled The Dunbas War and Odessa Massacre. We're back part five of my Ukraine series, the grand finale analyzing the documentary Ukraine on Fire by Oliver Stone. I know it's been exhilarating and thrilling for you to follow along. I appreciate it very much. Bear with me. Uh, I will be doing a slight tangent before I go into the next um, series analyzing the documentary titled From Democracy to Chaos. I've just been a bit Ukrained out personally. But overall, I do genuinely love this stuff. I love this topic. And hopefully you are learning a lot as well. And it's inspiring you to dig a little bit deeper and do more due diligence. Again, nobody here is justifying or condoning what is occurring at the very moment in Ukraine. I am simply doing this series to provide more context and give people more information um, just by exploring these situations and these documentaries that have existed in Ukraine leading up to the the leading up to the tragic events we see today. And we will definitely be doing that even more so in this episode, diving into deeper events after the Maidan revolution. And we'll see what the ramifications of this led to and how we can some how we can draw some connections to today. To recap, our last episode I ended with the Crimean referendum. Again, Crimea is the southern portion of Ukraine. Um, this area or this region of Ukraine experienced an overwhelming support from the Crimean citizens to depart from the new Ukrainian government post-Maidan regime change. Plenty of evidence that I pointed out in my last episode um, proving this, and there is plenty more that I actually unfortunately couldn't provide. There's only so much that I can do, even with five episodes ranging from 35 to 50 minutes. It really is a lot. Um, if I missed anything or misspoke or miscited information, I'm always open to direct messages and additional sources. If you got them, uh, please feel free, reach out. But let's get to it. In essence, the Maidan Revolution was not a universal approval of the regime change that occurred across the entirety of Ukraine. I can't highlight this enough. The divide between western central Ukraine versus the eastern southern parts um, was not only cultural or uh, was not only cultural but political as well and of course geographical. So, spring 2014 
we actually see footage from the documentary by Oliver Stone of masses of anti-protests for this new government in Ukraine. And they were actually taking place in the capital city of Kiev. Um, We don't hear much about these protests that go against the new regime, right? We only saw the Maidan revolution and a lot of it, especially with the media that we mentioned in previous episodes. But these citizens, they had concern, right, post-Maidan. And it's unfortunate they did not get the type of attention, international attention, that the pro-Western Central Ukrainian revolution did. Because, of course, Russia, bad. I make this statement because all we ever see is Russia, bad, right? With limited context, right? And a lot of information isn't being provided. So everything that I stumble across that isn't being provided, I just have to raise my fucking eyebrows. And this is all based off of my, you know, limited findings all the way over here in Scottsdale, Arizona. But the fact of the matter is, this support for the Maidan revolution um, was almost universal across all mainstream media outlets. And, you know, my purpose, again, is to at least put these leaks out in the open and put them on the table so you can see for yourself um, and make a really uh, good judgment on what is going on over there. A more accurate judgment, I should say. So moving forward, let's talk about this. We saw the anti-protests, and there was even more reactions to this regime change. The Eastern Russian separatists, right? So in comes this new regime post-Maidan, and what they did immediately to these separatists that weren't on board with this government, this new government and regime change, they deemed them as terrorists, Right. Terrorists against the new government. They also refer to them as local idiots. Right. And this is me referencing not only the documentary, but also uh, the book Ukraine and the Crossfire by Chris Casper Diplo. Um, They also and so a lot of the information and content and references come from him as well. And so these separatists, they broke off into those geographical areas in the east, the Donetsk and the Luhansk, immediately following this revolution. So these two specific regions, oblasts, this is where we are going to come across the Donbass War. Okay, and why did they separate? This is the main question that comes to my mind. What pushed these separatists? What was such a concern and fear for them? And it was none other than what we have highlighted in my previous episodes the presence of the new ultra-right-leaning extremists that were now officially in government. They were officially in power. We listed off specific names, organizations, and groups, right, and their prevalence in the Maidan Revolution. So they were in fear of what they would do to them, so they broke off, right? They did not want this new government to bring their neo-nationalism to the eastern parts of Ukraine, their lands, which were predominantly uh, Russian-speaking, Russian culture, pro-Russian, pro-Yanukovych, right? And so this is where we get into the Donbass War. And the Donbass War is the armed conflict in the Donbass region of Ukraine in the east. 
The separatist groups declared the Donetsk and the Luhansk um, areas of Ukraine as uh, the DPR and the LPR, right? And so the DPR, the PR represents People's Republic, so Donetsk, Donetsk uh, People's Republic, and the Luhansk uh, People's Republic. So DPR, LPR, moving forward for obvious reasons. What is important to note is that the majority of these separatists were indeed Ukrainian citizens who supported the unification of Ukraine with Russia, right? And actually regretted the collapse of the Soviet Union on top of that. We see footage of the military of eastern Ukraine and extremists, um, of the military of actually western and central western and central Ukraine and the extremists of the new government driving tanks through these areas and shooting at innocent citizens and civilians that are in these specific regions of DPR and LPR in the Donbass region. We see this clearly in the Oliver Stone documentary, and we also read it thoroughly in Chris Casper's book. And what people don't know is this region post-Maidan has been a guerrilla warfare atmosphere for years now. Never heard a peep of it until just recently. And even recently, we don't really extrapolate on this specific war and conflict and the atrocities that occurred from both sides. But we have to highlight they were predominantly under threat from the new government. That was the main, main source of aggression. But you won't hear that from the mainstream media, unfortunately. And so Chris Casper He provides additional sources confirming this, highlighting all the acts of violence committed against the innocent civilians in the Donbass region, and it was specifically fueled by the new Ukrainian government and extremists, right? And so why would this be common knowledge, right? Well, unfortunately, if this were to surface um, genuinely in all of its entirety, we would have to recognize that the neo-Nazis do play a prominent role in the government and in their power structures over there post-Maidan. And it would force them to not be able to portray and perceive this government fighting against the tyrannical Yanukovych in Russia, right, as the universal good guys. And so, and then in partnership with the even better guys, the United States, like their whole situation would be blown up if so. So conflicts like this, they keep under wraps, especially all the atrocities, which we will definitely get into when we start speaking of Odessa. And this matters to me. This really matters to me. And I ask the question, are these governments true representations of being the good guys? And I'm talking about ours and the current Ukrainian government. We hear of all the corruption And now that we have highlighted and put into the spotlight the presence of neo-Nazis and extremist groups, I mean, according to the media, these are supposed to be the good guys. My question is, are we sure? Are we sure? Maybe there's a little bit of gray here when it comes to the Donbass War and the entire Russia-Ukrainian conflict altogether. And so... This is clearly a reaction to the Maidan revolution, this separation. Um, This divide has been existing for years now, right? And we see this resistance um, that 
also occurred in Crimea as well. And so when we get back to the documentary, it's important to note he goes back in time slightly. Back in 2012, Yanukovych made the move of implementing Russia as a second language, right? And it was one of his main campaign promises, the status of the Russian language in Ukraine. Um, This has been a battle for years, right? Uh, A lot of people in Ukraine speak Russian and um, consider themselves a part of Russian culture. And so when he made this move in implementing uh, the Russian language, I mean, it was just full-blown punching and uh, physical engagement between representatives within the Rada, the parliament of Ukraine. Um, So it's a very, very touchy subject, to say the least. And over the passing of this second official language of Russia, it was specifically highlighting to be pushed in the south and eastern portions of Ukraine, where it was already predominant. And so Ukrainian nationalist groups formed protests against this law at the time, right? And we see the same familiar extremist names that I mentioned in earlier episodes. Um, They are present and active in this, to say the least. So as we fast forward, Yanukovych, he departs due to the coup d'etat of the Maidan quote-unquote revolution in February 3rd, 2014. The very next day after this regime change, the government, the new interim government, voted for an annulment against Yanukovych's Russian language law right off the bat. And although I think politically, uh, for political reasons, it was vetoed, it still sent a message to the people in the Russian-speaking regions and cities and areas like the Donbass and Crimea. Um, It sent a message that caused quite a bit of concern plus the overall fiasco altogether with red flags all over the place, literally. (laughs) And then we have more protests that emerge in response to that from all the pro-Russian supporters, right? And again, these are the protests that don't get seen, right? The revolution will not be televised. And that always makes me question and think. And so now we see these uprisings of pro-Russian supporters, even in eastern uh, in eastern Ukraine. But then we also see clashes of pro-Maidan protesters as well coming into the Donbass region. Many fatalities throughout the years from both sides. And this was a time where the Russian separatists literally took hold of the government over there, declaring it a republic. Again, I can't stress this enough. This was all in response, right? But the problem is these separatists were deemed as terrorists. The protests were not even mentioned or seen anywhere. International media, where do they aim it? They aim it towards Russia, quote unquote, invading Ukraine, right? First Crimea and now the DPR and LPR in the Donbass region. But again, this isn't and wasn't an invasion. In any of these areas, according to Oliver Stone Chris and Chris Casper, and my further due diligence in my references and research. So let's go back to the documentary specifically where Oliver Stone, he's interviewing Yanukovych, getting his perspective and his um, verbatim quotes. Yanukovych, quote, Mr. Oleksandr Turnchinov, 
bears a huge responsibility for starting a war against his own people. And so this individual was the first to fill Yanukovych's position for a few months after the Maidan regime change in the interim government. And so Yanukovych goes on and continues and says that he, Alexander, he sent the troops, the military, to the Donbass region, and they did what I had not done before, and they started the bloodshed, end quote. So Yanukovych is blaming the new interim leader who was not democratically elected, sending troops, deeming the eastern separatists as terrorists, and starting the bloodshed. And bloodshed, indeed, there was, right? And so this maneuver in particular by Alexander is referred to as the quote-unquote anti-terrorist operation, the ATO. And it was specifically occurring in April of 2014, again, post-Maidan. In 2018, this was renamed as the quote-unquote joint forces operation. So you might be able to look it up and see JFO instead of ATO. But this was basically a full-scale military operation to retake the government buildings um, that were operated and taken over by the separatists. Chris Casper from from Ukraine on uh, Ukraine in the crossfire says, quote, the ATO was a disaster when Ukrainian soldiers were confronted with blockades of unarmed demonstrators, one after the other gave up their weapons, referring to the um, Ukrainian soldiers, one after the other gave up their weapons and left or even joined the Russian separatist rebellion. Even local police officers joined the rebellion. And on the 24th of May, the Ukrainian Interior Ministry published a quote-unquote list of shame with 17,000 law enforcement officers in it who had joined the uprising, end quote. We again see this political divide within this conflict, the soldiers themselves also shifted and changed sides. Why? This is a new democracy. These are the good guys. But it's interesting to point out the contradiction of the new Kiev regime, right? So even in, so we're going to continue with Chris Chris Casper, quote, that the armed uprising in the Donbass region was a Russian quote-unquote invasion. Chris Casper says that the, the KIIS poll that was taken early in May 2014 found that the majority of the Donbass citizens characterized the insurgency as a quote-unquote people's revolt. Okay, so... These individuals that separated were not invading the area. They, too, were, were promoting a revolution against this new regime, right? So it's all about perspective and where the media lends and where the media narrative wants to take it. The, the deeper you dig, the more that you see good and bad exist on all ends, um, some more than others. But this right here really caught my attention. And it's highlighted in the documentary, and it's highlighted in these references as well. Also, 
On May 11, 2014, a referendum of independence was held in the separatist-controlled areas within the Donbass region and showed an 89% vote in favor of this revolt. Doesn't sound like an invasion to me again. It was reported that voters in this region were shot at by Ukrainian National Guards and extremists. And again, however, we need to consider how such events are reported. Ukrainian governments and their media report turnouts of only 32% in the Donbass region, and the rebels themselves claimed a 75% turnout in support of this region. And I wouldn't expect Ukraine to tell the truth to their people in this situation. I genuinely don't believe how that benefits them in any way, shape, or form, let alone have the exact statistics when they're not literally in that region during the vote um, since they're at war with them. But the same goes for the separatists. I do have my skepticism on how much of a turnout there is. Um, But again, I feel like the support was real not only in this region, but also in Crimea. And I jump to this conclusion because logically, if it wasn't, wouldn't we have seen a rinse and repeat of the Maidan revolution? We see plenty of footage of protests with flags that are Russian flags, anti-Nazi flags. We see the military shooting at people within this region. Um, It's basically further confirming that there's a huge divide And we need to consider this, especially when we see the atrocities of today and what exactly is going on over there, right? And so analyzing the history of this conflict and seeing like the specific events, um, I asked myself, why is Putin doing this in these regions today? You know, what what is his ultimate purpose of conquering and slaughtering the Eastern Russian-speaking culture, pro-Yanukovych um, populations of Ukraine, right? And, you know, ultimately, this led to their departure from Ukraine, right, via Crimea, via the Dumbass War. So it doesn't really make sense that this is the first place that he's going to invade today, Right. If someone has more information, please fill me in if I'm missing something. But that's just something that comes across my mind that I have to question. Not only that, Putin has the military power and I believe he has the intellect to do a full blown scale, real takeover of the entire western and central regions of Ukraine that are really his enemies. Right. If he really wanted to. Again, these are just things that don't quite add up from my very distant perspective all the way over here in Arizona. But again, I'm not a foreign policy expert. Um, This is where I direct my questions to you. Explain these situations and these conundrums to me and try to connect the dots to the atrocities that are occurring in the eastern parts of Ukraine today. Um, But overall, my takeaway, things are not always black and white. And just like Crimea, the commonly repeated narrative of Russia invading the Donbass region doesn't seem to hold as much water as the mainstream media and other intellectuals, pundits, commentators seem to blatantly suggest quite consistently. And, you know, this just makes me question things even more. You know, dig deeper, uncover the true gray 
realities of all these horrors and this conflict that's existed for years now. So moving forward, let's transition into even more mysterious and interesting events that really make me scratch my fucking head. The Odessa Massacre. Now, how many know about this event, right? Odessa is, the city of Odessa is just slightly north and slightly east of Crimea. Um, During this post-Maidan revolution, we see protests emerge in this city specifically as well. Um, And this is the, the location where one of the most catastrophic massacres occurs. And yet, I am sure many of you never even heard a peep of this. I know I haven't from any media outlets. And what did we see specifically? What happened um, just prior? And Oliver Stone, once again, highlights opposition leader um, Arsene Yatsenyuk, right? Shaking hands, kissing babies of all different types of international diplomats, showing how Ukraine is now free is now a free democracy and a legitimate government um, escaping uh, the stranglehold of Russia and the corrupt, evil Yanukovych, right? The Putin puppet, right? And we see Yatsenyuk doing all this publicity with cameras snapping and filming him. But it's right around the time where we see this catastrophic event take place. So early January 2014, we see the anti-Maidan protesters fill the streets of Odessa and many occupied tents in front of the trade union house there. And this is the monument that houses this horrific massacre. And the importance of Odessa has geopolitical advantages with it being next to the biggest seaport But also, if Odessa starts to hop on board with this growing support, such as joining in with the Donbass region and the separatists and the Crimean referendum, right? These are things that could really complicate uh, things politically for the Western Central Ukrainian government that just took place. So extinguishing this rebellion in Odessa was clearly a priority and definitely occurred. And so what happened? May 2nd, 2014, there was a soccer match nearby. Many pro-Western Central Ukrainians attended, but also in attendance, was pro-Maidan defense units with shields and helmets. And I don't know why were they there. Uh, The soccer game was clearly not their only interest. Not too far down the road, the trade union house was the main primary Target where all those civilians and innocent protesters of the ant of the Maidan revolution they occupied in front of the house, they were the ones that were gonna really suffer the most. And we see plenty of footage of the extremists masked up again, helmets, shields, arms armed with bats, marching to these tents at the trade house trade union house and we see them setting fires to the tents scaring the pro-russian protest into the trade union house and unfortunately this was the game plan to trap them inside plenty of footage confirming this plenty of citations 
And so according to Oliver Stone, he points out this was extremely strategic with a rabbit trail of evidence to support that notion. We know this because there is plenty of footage with our familiar big names and shot callers and the giant crowds of extremists started throwing Molotov cocktails into the trade building where all these uh, anti-Maidan protesters were trapped inside. And all of those who fled inside were burned alive. And you see videos of them jumping desperately from the windows on fire. And you'll see the, uh, the extremists coming and just beating them up and basically just killing them right there on the spot from where they dropped. It is insanely intense and sad. And again, not a fucking peep from the media. Just burnt bodies. There's plenty of evidence that this occurred. There's plenty of footage. Go look it up yourself. And so Oliver Stone then follows up showing some coverage of this massacre from a specific talk show outlet listing off the casualties from the Odessa event. And the main host was quoting the death toll. 15 Russian citizens, 10 people from transit, Transnistria, and no residents of Odessa, end quote. And the crowd just started cheering, right? Cheering. This was a great thing. And remember, the Russians are being uh, perceived as terrorists across the airwaves, Right, according to all the news outlets. So when you list off all the people that were brutally murdered and trapped inside of this union house and we see applause and cheering for it, it really makes me think, and it's sad. Innocent people burned alive by extremists with ties to the current Ukrainian government. I mean, this must be something worth applauding, I guess. And now, this just further confirms that the Eastern Donbass region and the Crimean people, they had full right to be concerned. Another situation where I shouldn't believe my my lion eyes? Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, not everything is being presented honestly. Either way, the damage was done. The extremists were cheering. And back to that rabbit trail that I mentioned, our good fucking friend, Andre Perubi, Footage of him just days, uh, just the day before he made a visit and was basically rallying up the supporters, hyping them up and motivating them to do this evil deed. We see him meeting with specific individuals that happened to be spotted in the during this tragic event participating in the Odessa massacre. And then guess what? We see Andre Perubi in front of cameras after the incident is over. Who does he blame? He blames Putin publicly. I have failed to see how that connects with Putin. The right sector, the extremist group that I've talked about plenty of times, published on their website that May 2nd, 2014, the massacre of Odessa became another proud moment of the national history of Ukraine. End quote. Disgusting. Odessa's importance continues, though. On May 30th, 2015, the appointment of the new governor, Mikhail Saakashvili, 
right? This is where we go down the rabbit hole a bit deeper. He was originally from Georgia, a neighboring country of Ukraine. We see plenty of footage of him participating firsthand during the Rose Revolution in 2003. This is just another color revolution. And this is where we see the regime change that overran a duly elected president. And that president's name was Edward Shavardnads, and he was president from 1995 to 2003. And so Mikhail Saakashvili, this man, made his way, and he has so many ties to prominent figures to not only in the U.S. government and actually lived in the U.S., but he also has extremely close ties to Viktor Yushchenko. Remember the George Washington of Ukraine during the 2004 Orange Revolution? We see plenty of videos and pictures, but this one in particular, um, this man, he seems like he was just groomed for this governor position in Odessa, right? He did his part in the Georgian Rose Revolution and ended up taking the reins there as president. And now, years later, um, he gets put into Odessa as another puppet government scenario. And is it crazy to think that it was all orchestrated by the U.S. and the pro-Nazi extremist organizations? I don't think so. So Saakashvili, when I said he lived in the U.S., he received a U.S. State Department scholarship and worked for a New York City law firm, which represented the organization Kamara, which was the specific resistance movement in Georgia in 2003. Georgia, indeed, had a successful regime change. Mikhail Saakashvili was definitely a part of it. He became the president himself. And next thing you know, what happens? Georgia joins NATO. Military bases are placed in this country. Again, super close to Vladimir Putin, among other countries that join NATO, putting more and more pressure to isolate Russia. The Georgian populace, who were against this revolution, much like the Eastern separatists, right? The anti-Maidan protests. Same thing, the Georgian populace. They came out, and they weren't happy. They protest. We see footages of this just after the regime change, right? Where the new government actually applied the brutal police forces against them. The real oppression. All straight from Miguel Saakashvili. And again, not a peep from the media, right? Go figure. So with a ton of scandals and issues, criminal court cases, Saakashvili loses his seat in this regime change down the road. He fled the country in 2013, and now all of a sudden, we see him see him re-enter the picture after this massacre. We see this same individual become the governor of Odessa. He renounces his citizenship as a Georgian to officially become Ukrainian. We see footage of him actively supporting 
the Maidan movement in the streets of Kiev in 2014, and now he's in charge? An individual with this many ties closer to Putin in the city of Odessa? It's very interesting stuff. It just seems like he was rewarded this position for all of his hard work from previous revolution participation. We also see, might I add, an insane amount of pictures and videos of him with Obama, George Bush, U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt, and of course, Viktor fucking Yushchenko. Can you, would you be able to believe that Viktor Yushchenko is actually the godfather to his son? Ties on top of ties on top of ties. But again, don't believe those lying eyes. You're a conspiracy theorist if you point this out. And I continue off that path as I top off one other mysterious event that took place that many people do not even know about. I know that I didn't know shit about this until I watched this documentary and started going down the rabbit hole myself. The Malaysian Airlines tragedy. The Malaysian airline that was shot down by a missile flying over eastern Ukraine near the Russian border. Why is this not um, known as much as it should be? And why is there not greater knowledge by the media or the government? And why do they not put more pressure to investigate on this specific incident? Well, I'll tell you why. According to Obama, after this event, quote, evidence indicates the plane was shut down, was shot down by Russian separatists, end quote. Fingers were pointed immediately to Russia again, of course. But does anyone want to pay attention to the independent investigation performed by some Dutch company that showed in reality the missile that was used to shoot down this commercial airline with innocent people in it was actually not the correct missile identified. It was an older model that was actually in possession of eastern Ukraine and military forces along that border, not the Russian separatists. This is important stuff, right? This incident was leveraged against Russia to further isolate, right? Obama imposes new sanctions right away against Russia. Does he backpedal? Does he say that he potentially could have made a mistake? Of course not. This is where I wrap back around with the theory of a false flag operation. Like, why the silence? If the independent organization performing the investigation pointed out that the missile was shot by somebody else, right, instead of who they initially thought shot it down, why no public interest? Why no government interest? Well, it's simple. It's because the objective was achieved. The third wave of sanctions hit Russia. The publicity is there. They're the bad guys. Putin is evil. Russia is bad. Ukraine, good by all means necessary. No room for gray area. No mistakes. You apologists. Question nothing. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so, 
with all that being laid out and put on the table, all these things that I have taken into consideration before fully diagnosing my beliefs on the matters and the mess that's occurring right now overseas, I simply need to get more information. History is important. This whole series I did is important. Prominent figures who are involved are important to know who they are, what they're doing, what are the connections, what are the exact events, and how are people reacting to it. Don't these connections mean something when we're looking at the war today? Don't these incidents that are blatantly being lied about and misconstrued that are occurring in regards to the Crimean referendum, the Donbass War, the Odessa Massacre, Governor Mikhail Saakashvili, and this Malaysian Airlines tragedy? Don't all these things need to be considered, right? I think so. And how about the media outlets? True, objective journalists that are not ideological, they would expose this. And a lot of them do, but unfortunately, their voices aren't as heard, aren't as heard as much anymore. And rightfully so. And then what about the propaganda? Is this the conclusion to everything that I've spoken about in these last episodes about the documentary? Are these sources that I'm looking at all propaganda? Are we sure about that? Because something tells me the divide still exists in Ukraine. And my question is, how much do you know about it? How much do you know about any of this stuff? I have literally only scratched the surface on all of these topics. And I put together five episodes, 35 minutes to 50, trying to break it down as as simply as possible and giving you references to go look at on your own. Right? This documentary was explosive. It uncovered a lot for me and much to think about and led me to further investigate. It should spark the interest for you to do the same before just hopping on Facebook and posting up a flag supporting Ukraine. We see this same song and dance over and over again. It seems to me something over there is quite messy, and it has eerie similarities to other regions and historical events all over the world. To think that the U.S. and NATO don't have some influence and blood on their hands, to me, in my opinion, is just fucking naive. But, but to even further make a statement without, without doing some serious homework and research yourself, I could say it's irresponsible. So hopefully this summary, if you stuck with me throughout it, shed some additional light. Again, I will be taking a tangent because I am Ukrained out. <laughs> I'll be doing some separate interviews on different topics and some different episodes, and I'll wrap back around on my next series, extrapolating the documentary from Democracy to Chaos. But either way, um, we can explore everything a bit more objectively when we look at both sides. So I am looking forward to bringing the information and my questions from Oliver Stone's documentary and applying it into the next one 
and seeing if we see see ourselves some gaps and holes that are conveniently left out or can be filled, right? Because we all know that occurs all the time to fit narratives and agendas. And if there's one thing that I've learned since 2020, there is plenty of narratives and agendas. And if you disagree with that statement, I suggest to you only one thing. Wake the fuck up. The ultimate goal here in my my podcast is always to just reach the truth to the best of my ability. And I apologize for my throat cutting out every now and then um, throughout this episode. But really, I hope you did enjoy this entire series. Um, The plot, it always thickens and will continue to thicken. And I'm excited to wrap back around and get back to it. But please, again, like, share, subscribe, all that shit. And thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone. And I look forward to you tuning in next time. Farewell. <laughs>